Good morning. My name is Ruth. So the scripture reading today found in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 22 to verse 32. So I thank my wife. She reminds me, don't forget your glass on your head. <laughs> I forget a lot. I will read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 to verse 32 in NIV version. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow dry out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or houses divide or, or household divided against itself will be st not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is, he is divided against itself. How then can this kingdom stand? And if I drive out demon by busy bull, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judge. But if I if it is be by the Spirit of God that I dry out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Oh, again, how can everyone enter a strong, man, strong man's house and carry out his possessions unless he first tie up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Morning, everyone. And morning to you who are at home. I found this little cross, if you can see it, in the foyer this morning. If you've lost that, it looks like it might be a child's one. It's not solid gold, but undoubtedly it's precious to somebody. So if you know who that is, then come and see me, and for $20 you could have that back. <laughs> All the money goes to the church, of course, so it's a good cause. It's got a slight indentation on it, um, but somebody obviously has dropped that. Uh, sickness has hit our family. Uh, little Franklin has a virus, in which he has given to his mother, and so pray for us that we don't get that virus, particularly me. We have two funerals this week, Betty Haywood tomorrow. Betty and her husband, Kevin, it's Kevin's funeral. Kevin used to come with her to craft and had been doing that for many, many years. Heather Robinson, who was here somewhere, 
Uh, Betty started coming in your time when you were leading craft, apparently, and came with another lady and has been coming ever since. Lovely lady. Uh, she and Kevin, simple faith. Um, and so his funeral's tomorrow, and that's Betty. That's 11 o'clock here in the auditorium. And then, of course, on Friday, our brother Cole has gone home to be with the Lord. And it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon here in the auditorium if you would like to come and celebrate Cole's life together. Uh, many of you will know Cole, many of you probably won't. Cole was taller than I, bigger than I, and smarter than I. One of the things, there are many stories that we can tell, but I'll tell you this one. Cole used to be an elder in our church 150 years ago. Um, and Cole is a, was a straight shooter. If he had a problem with you, he spoke to you. And he didn't back down. And he's six foot four. <laughs> Many times. I had great times with Cole. <clears throat> we got on very well together. He would come into my office and he would sit down and he would close the door and he says, I've got something to say to you. <laughs> Let's just pray first, Cole, shall we? It's... <laughs> very rarely did he come. He did come on several occasions. But he would often come and check things out. I have heard this. Is it true? No, Cole, that's not true. Leave it with me. <laughs> and I don't know if you were here. I'll just go on talking about him, won't I? <laughs> I can, I'll never forget the members meeting, his last members meeting that he came to. And if you're at that members meeting, you will know what I'm talking about. He addressed the members directly. He was a lovely man, loved God with all of his heart, Nice family, great family, who followed the Lord Jesus. And of course, it's his son-in-law, Peter, who is now our administrator. And Peter's wife, Judy, is the daughter, of course, and four kids. So that's on Friday, 2 o'clock. It'll be a lovely time of celebration and remembering both a good brother in Christ and also reflecting on our own life's journey together. There was another funeral, a few, there is a funeral coming. I spoke to you about a young uh, indigenous boy, Jay Brown, last week and said, could we raise some funds to support? Uh, his body was transferred last Wednesday up to Doomagy, I think, and uh, a truckload of furniture would have gone as well. And so we're raising funds to help support, particularly the transfer of the furniture. And thank you to those of you who have contributed and some of that's very generous. Thank you very much. Uh, we're still leaving it open just for a few days this week to finalise that. So far we've, uh, over the $1,000 mark, we're at about 1200 something like that. We probably need to get to around about the 2000 mark. So if you're able and you, would, you feel that you would like to assist in that, uh, then that would be greatly appreciated. This morning we're going to talk about sins against the Holy Spirit. There are six sins against the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a test after I pray. If you can name all six, then we'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, you hear everything and you know everything that can be known. And you're aware of illnesses and grief and sadness at the loss of loved ones. I pray that you'll 
particularly be with Betty, that you be with Jude and the family, and that you'll be with Jay Roan's family. And Lord, thank you that you also promised to be with us. We need to hear from you. Could you enlighten us by your word? Help our thoughts to be aligned with your thoughts. Help us to embrace your truth and for your truth to guide and direct our steps, our lives, our actions, our words. Help us to follow in the footsteps of those who have gone before us. Lord, draw near to us and speak to us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Sins against the Holy Spirit. A bit of an outline. As I already said, the New Testament talks about six sins. There are seven. There's one in the Old Testament in terms of different words that are used. So what are the sins against the Holy Spirit that we can commit? Number one, not in any particular order, shout it out. Grieve, somebody said. Blaspheme, lie. Reject, uh, yep, it's resist is the word that's actually used. That's four. What was the one? Jealous? No. Did we say blaspheme before? Yes. Okay, counted that one. You obviously need the sermon. Quench? You looking stuff up. No, no, just remembering. Your beanies are coming here. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> Last one, insult. The one in the Old Testament is rebel. Now, these are different words that are used, but they sort of overlap in their meaning as you think about it more carefully. So of the six mentioned in the New Testament, the first three, did I give it to you? No, I didn't. The first three can be committed by a person who's not a follower of Jesus yet. The first three are committed by people who are unbelievers. That's to blaspheme, to resist, or to insult. That's how we sin against the Spirit before we come to faith. And in fact, if that's our attitude, then we won't come to faith. And then the other three, to grieve, to quench, and to lie to, are committed by believers. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to spend some time particularly looking at the controversial one, the blasphemy, try to clarify that for us. And then the others you'll see will overlap and I'll spend a little bit of more time on quenching and grieving because that's certainly applicable to us as followers of the Lord Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convince, to convict of sin and to point people to the Lord Jesus as Saviour and Redeemer. When we resist his work, we insult him. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll come to that. And when we tell others that we're doing that and that they shouldn't do it, then we're blaspheming against him. We're slandering him, depending on the things that we have said. 
Before I come to this passage, and I do want to work through it reasonably quickly, all sins against God, let me emphasise this, all sins against God, all sins against the Holy Spirit are forgivable. All sins. It's a consistent theme all the way through the scriptures. Psalm 86 verse 5, you Lord are a forgiving and good um, you are bound in love to all who call to you. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget all of his benefits. Who forgives all our sins. Uh, Ephesians 1.7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. That's a consistent theme all through the scriptures. All sin is forgivable. And then if you're a good Bible reader or a student, then you would automatically be saying except one all sin is forgivable except one and that's the one we're going to talk about and try to discover exactly what did Jesus mean by that question could Judas who betrayed Jesus have been forgiven my answer yes if he wanted to be all sin is forgivable Except one. God forgives unimaginable sinners. If you've heard of a man called Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee murderer, or Ted Bundy, or Carla Faith Tucker, these were, you know, serial murderers, terrible people who in jail found Jesus and forgiveness. Thief on the cross found forgiveness in the last day in the last hours of his life every sin is forgivable so it doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done what you've said or haven't said God wants to and is willing to forgive you even the person who is resisting the Holy Spirit even the person who is consistently suppressing that God still wants to forgive but there does come a point where because the person is consistently refusing then God says there's not much I can do about it because God forgives all sin if we repent if we ask him to that's the condition. That's the God's offering a gift. What do we have to do? You have to receive it. And I think he's offering the gift to all. In that reading that Ruth read to us, Matthew chapter 12, even the Lord Jesus says, before he mentions the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Every kind of sin and slander. But of course, if you commit the unforgivable sin the sin against the Holy Spirit blaspheming him then you can't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come God is willing and able to forgive the worst of us that means that there is not a human being that you can look into the eyes of and God is not willing and wanting to forgive them including the one you see in the mirror provided you repent Provided you come to do and say, please forgive me. But if not, if people don't repent, if you don't repent, 
then God can't forgive. God won't forgive. Unless you ask for it. And what's the Holy Spirit doing? Trying to convict you, trying to convince you, trying to motivate you. And you might ask this question, I'm not sure if you may have asked this question before or you might even be asking it now. How can God do that? How can God forgive anybody? How can God just wipe the clate clean, you know, without any requirement of punishment or recompense or payback? How could he do that for the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Ted Bundys and the Carla Faith Tuckers? How can they get off scot-free? Well, of course, God doesn't just wipe the slate clean. Here, there is punishment, but he pays for the punishment himself, doesn't he? That's what he did through Jesus. And, of course, sin has consequences. God does, can, and often doesn't, deliver us from the consequences of our sin. Forgiveness is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is a get-out-of-jail card, but it's not free. There are consequences. So let's look at this passage very carefully, work our way through it. Here is a situation where the Pharisees have a certain attitude and reaction to Jesus and sure enough the Holy Spirit now orchestrates this situation right in front of them very publicly. Then some people brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. Jesus healed him, cast the demon out And the man could talk and he could see. It's rather dramatic, isn't it? And obvious. And the Pharisees don't deny it. And in fact, verse 23, all of the people were astonished. And they started wondering, is this the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been expecting? And the Pharisees, out of panic of seeing people beginning to consider the claims of Jesus. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow, notice the way they talk about Jesus, this fellow drives out demons. They realised that there was some sort of supernatural explanation for what had happened. Two choices. One, it's God. Two, it's Satan. They didn't want, if it's God, then they're going to have to bow the knee before Jesus and acknowledge who he is and the claims are true. They're opposed to Jesus, they're hostile to him. So they go the other way and they say, well, the supernatural cause of this deliverance is Satan. This fellow is um, in league with the devil, with the evil one. He's to be avoided. Jesus knew their thoughts. So this is something they thought as well as said. Notice that. And Jesus says, your argument's ridiculous. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Why would Satan direct his forces against his own kingdom, against his own forces? It's a ridiculous argument. And Jesus said, not only that, it's inconsistent. If Satan drives out Satan, Satan, he is divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, if that was true, well then by whom do you drive them out? Because you claim to be able to drive out demons. You don't claim it's Beelzebub then. Um, 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, if it is by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There are two supernatural causes. One is Satan, one is God. You're wrong. It's not Satan. It's God. It's the Spirit of God at work in me. It's the Spirit of God doing this. And the Spirit of God did this deliberately in front of you so that you would be convicted, convinced that I am the one, the Redeemer, the Messiah. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Notice that? Every kind of sin and every slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Not cannot be, will not be. Why? Well, he goes on to, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. It's possible. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is this unforgivable sin, this sin which will not be forgiven? Well, in this passage, the context is attributing Jesus' divine power to Satan. But it's not a one-off statement. It's not a, oh, I said it once. It's rather a consistent, persistent attitude of opposition to what the Spirit of God is trying to convict you of. To be unconvinced by the evidence and to dismiss it all by attributing it to Satan, that's exactly what the Pharisees did here. And some people believe this. Well, but Jesus was here in the flesh. And Jesus is not here in the body anymore. He's ascended. He's the right-hand side of the Father. If this was attributing the works that he did in the flesh, in the body, to Satan, well, because he's not here in the body, you can't commit this sin now. Some people teach that. So can we still commit this unforgivable sin? I think the answer is yes. Why? Because we can still turn our backs on God's clear conviction of our sin. We can still resist. We can still refuse to turn to him and to repent and to ask for forgiveness and therefore remain unforgiven. Why is it unforgivable? Well, because the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict us of sin and our need of Jesus as our saviour. If we refuse to respond to the Holy Spirit or even say things against his work, we leave ourselves in our unrepentant state and therefore unforgiven. Is it possible for a person who has been resisting for a long time God's work in their life, is it possible for them to be forgiven? Yes, if they repent, if they stop resisting, if they stop denying. That's why some people all of their life can resist, 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 not interested, resist, 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 get sick on their deathbed, God, forgive me, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God accepts them. As long as you're above ground, there is hope. Now, I don't have good, solid biblical verses for this one, but I think this. It's more an observation on life. 
that we have a path marked out for us and that somewhere along the path there is a line drawn somewhere that might be right at the end. It is for many people, I'm sure. But for some people, it's here. And as you approach that line, the Spirit of God will be convicting you, challenging you, doing it, whether it's in dreams or people or circumstances, he's trying to get your attention. But if you step over that line, then you've passed the point of no return. You can be alive in this life and you're approaching you know, the remaining decades of your life and then you will die. And in the remaining decades, if you cross that line, you will, the Holy Spirit will withdraw from you. He will not be trying to convict you. He will not be trying to convince you. You've crossed the line. So there is a warning. Don't delay your decision until the end. Don't keep putting it off because you never know when the last chance is that the Spirit of God will work in you and draw you to himself. That's my personal belief. I don't know where the line is. So therefore, from my perspective, if you're above ground, if you're breathing, there is hope. Turn to God. Is it possible for a person who has stepped over the line, who's gone down here, is it possible for them to turn to God and to be forgiven? Well, in theory, yes. But if they've crossed the line, they won't want to. They'll have no desire to. And that's what this passage is referring to and illustrating for us. If you fear that you have crossed the line or if you fear that you have committed this Holy Spirit, if that concerns you, let me say this to you pastorally and theologically, you haven't. Some people fear that they've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. If you fear it, you haven't done it. Because if you've done it, if your attitude is that of non-compliance and resistance consistently, then you'll be totally unconcerned about it. You won't fear it. You'll be quite indifferent to it. You'll be quite happy and content in where you're at spiritually. I don't need God. There is no God. So this sin is unforgivable, not because God is unwilling to forgive, but because the individual refuses to accept the forgiveness. And the only way to be forgiven is through Jesus. So as I've already said, God can't and God won't forgive the unrepentant. C.S. Lewis then asked the very important question in his book, The Problem of Pain. What are you expecting God to do? What are you expecting God to do for these people who refuse to accept his gift? They say, leave us alone. God has done everything possible to try and save them. Leave us alone. And so God says, have it your way. It's not going to force us. The Pharisees, you see, were saying this, and it wasn't through misunderstanding of what was going on. It was through hostility. It was a deliberate, intentional, calculated response that aims at stopping others coming to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23 which is a whole chapter about where Jesus unloads on the Pharisees and their stubbornness 
to respond. In verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves don't enter, and nor you let others enter who are trying to. That's the attitude. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's not so much something that you say, though blasphemy for us is often verbal, it's a word, but it can be written and it can be thought. Have you ever had the experience, or you might have known of somebody else, where God is doing something, whether it's in the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, or somewhere else in the world, something weird is happening. And some people say, that's not God, that's the devil. Ever had that experience? Is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. Because that can be just simply a misunderstanding and a misanalysis, a misdiagnosis of what's going on. The blasphemy in the Holy Spirit is rather a consistent, persistent attitude of resistance to. I don't believe that's God. And you shouldn't either. This isn't God, that's Satan. That's something else. It's that attitude. Consistent, persistent. It's not a one-off statement. It's not a, something spoken in anger or grief or, you know, suddenly. That's not it. It's the attitude of the heart that persists to resist. I need to move on. Um, and that's what the Pharisees were doing. When this attitude and action continues, this becomes the ultimate sin. It becomes unforgivable. Why is it unforgivable? Because they won't repent. So it's not a word or a phrase, a statement which is said, which is like pushes you over the line. That's your consistent choice. And bearing in mind, again, the Holy Spirit did this miracle right in front, right out in the open of the Pharisees. He wanted them to see it. Why? Because he's trying to convince them. Here is unmistakable proof of the deity and the God-given mission of Jesus. And they're not convinced by it with their absurd logic, their faulty theology and their hard hearts. We will not believe. At um, 10.40 this morning, the Sunday school teachers are going, uh, kids' church teachers are going to bring up the, your, your children if you're a parent. So I've got eight minutes, okay? Because I'm supposed to finish at 9.30. And I'm still only on the first sin. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> but I've repented. <clears throat> there was a man in hospital who had surgery and he was convinced that through this surgery that he would die, that he wouldn't survive it. He did survive it. He woke up and he was in the recovery ward where there were very bright lights and everyone was wearing white gowns, masks and gloves. And he said to the nurse attending him, is this heaven? <laughs> no, you've come through the surgery well. He was unconvinced. I've died and gone to heaven. He was stressed by that. His blood pressure went up. I don't know why you would be stressed if you went to heaven, but anyway. <clears throat> Every, uh, people tried to convince him he wouldn't be. Eventually the surgeon came in and the surgeon very methodically said, I can give you very clear evidence that you are alive, that you haven't died and gone to heaven. Question, do dead people bleed? 
To which the man said, no, dead people don't bleed. So the surgeon took a scalpel and made a very small nick in his finger and it was bleeding. And the man said, I'll be blowed. Dead people do bleed. <laughs> a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. It has to be a willing, heartfelt response. You can't persuade or convince people into the kingdom. God's got to do a work and people have to respond to it. And some people, you know them. They're in your family. They're in your neighbourhood. They're at your work. They are totally unconvinced by very clear evidence. And usually it's not that they don't believe, it's rather that they don't want to believe. They want to be in charge of their life. Don't judge them, love them. Because as long as they're above ground, there is hope. God is willing and God wants to forgive them. He's just waiting for them to ask. The administrator is starting to pace because he knows that I am over time. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission, Pete. Um, who was in danger of this sin? Well, anybody who was persisting defiantly against God. Um, I've already told you that one. Blasphemy against the spirit, the unforgivable sin, is this ongoing hardening of your heart against the Holy Spirit who is trying to lead you to repent of sin and believe in Christ. Furthermore, it's an issue of the heart that manifests itself in your words. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is not simply saying something bad about the Holy Spirit, but it's the persistent rejection of the convicting work. As long as one rejects the Spirit, one can never find the forgiveness. If someone can repent of every sin, why can't they repent of this sin? You can, in theory. But the nature of this sin is such that one doesn't repent of it because those who commit it and persist in it don't know that they're sinning. Get it? Hope so. Got to go. I've got three minutes. Next one. You stiff-necked, this is Stephen preaching to the synagogue of Jewish people. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Resisting the Holy Spirit, I suggest to you, is the same as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Similar, except blasphemy is often verbal. It's something they're saying, not just feeling and choosing to do. And that's what they do. Um, was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't predict, uh, persecute? They push it aside. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've taken him and you've murdered, betrayed and murdered him. See, it's a resisting God, resisting God's work and what he wants to do. That's resisting the spirit. 1029 is down the bottom. And that you are those who insult the spirit. If you read that verse, then you'll see that they trample underfoot the son of God. They make the blood of Jesus a very common thing. There's nothing special about it. And in that way, you insult the spirit. Insult, resist and blasphemy can all be committed by a person before they become a follower of the Lord Jesus. Can a Christian, a believer in the Lord Jesus, commit those sins? No. Because you've already responded. You've already received forgiveness. But we as followers of the Lord Jesus can commit those sins. Don't grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. 
The fact that we can grieve the Spirit of God means that he is a person, that he has feelings, that he has a personality. We can grieve the Holy Spirit when we deny him the full and complete control of our redeemed being, of our bodies. He desires our surrender and our submission to him. He wants us to seek his approval and to give him our full allegiance above all. He'll point us to Jesus. And that's what the Lord wants to us. Disobedience will grieve the Spirit. When we disobey his inspired words and commands, when we disobey his inner voice, where he suggests and prompts us to do certain things, then we can lose the sense of his presence. When we grieve the Spirit of God, he doesn't leave us. He just goes quieter within us. And you may sense and experience a silence or an absence. He's not absent, but you may feel that he's absent because you're grieving him. What's the cure? Repent. Come to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I said that. I'm sorry that I did that. I've offended you. I've hurt you. Please forgive me. Cured. Cleansed. When we allow or do things that he hates, then we willingly pollute his temple. Of course, this is all at the conscious level. There are lots of things we do that we don't even know that we're doing it. He overlooks those. He'll work on them eventually. It's the ones we're aware of. And if you look at this passage, Ephesians 4, look at the five verses before it and the ten verses, five verses after it, and see that it's all about how you treat other people, what you say to them, how you act towards them, and right in the middle of that is this teaching about don't grieve the spirit. It's how we treat others that's important. Conclusion. May we daily awaken and greet him. Good morning, Lord. May we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Endeavouring to leave all of the evil things undone and all of the evil words unsaid. And thus walk, walk with the Holy Spirit. May the Lord grant us grace to do what is pleasing to the Spirit, knowing his will and desires and being obedient to his faintest whispers of his voice within us. We can grieve the Spirit. I don't have time to go any further. We can quench the Spirit, individually as well as corporately. To quench the Spirit, just like we quench thirst, we can quench a fire, you can put it out. So we can quench the influence of the Spirit within us by unsympathetic criticisms, by cold looks, by suppressing God's word to us. <clears throat> we can suppress, quench the Holy Spirit in our own hearts. We were at a dinner last night, <clears throat> some of our church staff together, and we had a pit fire, and it was really enjoyable. With this pit fire, the fire will always die down. What quenches a fire? Insufficient material? throw another log on and it kicks off again. Neglecting the fire, fires need to be tended. Or impurities in the stuff that you put on the fire. And bearing in mind, if I use the analogy of the fire, the spirit of God within us is like a fire. Well, Phaeton's got a fire extinguisher. He tries to always blow it out. So we have that opposition. But in terms of quenching the spirit, what do we do to overcome that? We'll use proper fuel. It's the vision and purpose of our church, if you like. Stir the fire up into a blaze. Spend time with him every day. Bible reading, prayer, listening to him. The three C's. Be committed to God every day. 
and you won't quench the spirit. Fellowship with one another in church and groups and in ministry. Connect with one another every week. You won't quench the spirit. And evangelism, mission and divine appointments. Be concerned for others at every opportunity and you won't quench the spirit. I'm racing. Blaspheming, resisting, insulting. What an unbeliever can do. Lie to, I didn't talk about that one. Grieve and quench is what a believer can do when it comes to the spirit. So let's be careful not to grieve, not to quench. And let's be prayerful for those who are resisting and potentially blaspheming or insulting. Got a church members meeting at 10 o'clock, everybody, don't forget. If you want prayer, please come forward. The elders and I are here. We'll pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot in this, these truths, this teaching. Could you continue to enlighten us about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit? And Lord, increase our sensitivity and awareness of how we can offend him, grieve him, or quench him. Lord, forgive us for having done so. And stir into flame, Lord, in our hearts, your gifts, your desires. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Transform us to be filled with him and to become more like Jesus. Lord, have your way, your will in each of our lives. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. What we're going to do is members, you